traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. One of the books that I refer to most when I'm doing the show is, of course, The Twilight Zone Companion by Mark Zickrey. When he writes about the episode that we're going to be talking about tonight, he offers only this three-sentence review. The whole truth was an odd choice, both for videotape and for The Twilight Zone. Although the used car lot is supposed to be outside, the illusion is not convincing, and the subject matter reveals that even sailing was not immune to some of the more pervasive prejudices of the day. Thankfully, in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, Martin Grams Jr. gives us a little bit more to work with, but not much. One of the main bits of trivia is that the premise for this episode was put together from the premise of two episodes of the aborted Mr. Bemis television series. Now, if you remember way back when, uh, Luke presented an episode about Mr. Bemis. It's one of the season two episodes of The Twilight Zone. And it was at one point supposed to be a television series about the misadventures of this character, Mr. Bemis. And in one of those proposed episodes, Mr. Bemis was to be blessed by a guardian angel and as a result, he only told the truth for 24 hours. And in another one, Mr. Bemis was to be a used car salesman. And hilarity ensues. So we have Mark Zickrey, who doesn't even dignify the episode with a proper review. And we have information from Martin Grams Jr. that it was based on unused material for a series based on one of the most poorly reviewed Twilight Zone episodes of all time, Mr. Bemis. So it's not a good omen at this point, and there's really not much in the way of trivia for this one either, so it might be a short podcast, but let's see for ourselves when we look at the whole truth. This, as the banner already has proclaimed, is Mr. Harvey Honeycutt. An expert on commerce and con jobs. A brash, bright, and larceny loaded wheeler and dealer who, when the good Lord passed out of conscience, must have gone for a beer and missed out. And these are a couple of other characters in our story. A little old man in a Model A car, but not just any old man and not just any Model A. There's something very special about the both of them. As a matter of fact, in just a few moments, they'll give Harvey Honeycutt something that he's never experienced before. Through the good offices of a little magic, they will unload on Mr. Honeycutt the absolute necessity to tell the truth. Exactly where they come from is conjectural. But as to where they're heading for, this we know. Because all of them, and you, are on the threshold of the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on the 20th of January 1961. Written by Rod Serling and directed by James Sheldon. Now James Sheldon makes his Twilight Zone debut with the whole truth. But thankfully, he didn't just leave it with this one. He directed A Penny For Your Thoughts, Long Distance Call, It's A Good Life, Still Valley, 
and they sing the body electric. So there is at least one classic in there, but maybe more, we'll see that when we get to those episodes. Now Sheldon would have been about 40 when he directed this episode, and had been directing since the early 50s. So because he was quite young in his career, he sits in a place where he did spend a good few years in the multitude of anthology series of the time, and when he worked on them he did seem to stick around to direct five or more shows in each one. But then when television changed, he adapted with it. He spent time on comedies like Sanford and Son, MASH, The Love Boat, and then into the 80s on The Dukes of Hazard, The Waltons, Cagney and Lacey. So yeah, he was very much our hard-working TV director. So I've mentioned already about how part of this episode is made up from unused plot ideas from Mr. Bemis, but there's also something else in the mix as well. In the early 50s, Rod Serling wrote a teleplay called The Gab, about a young guy in his 20s with the gift of the gab. And a used car salesman recruits the boy to work for him, but when the boy discovers that he's being used, he takes matters into his own hands. I think over the last few episodes with the whole story of dust thing, it really shows how Rod Serling would reuse ideas if they didn't come to fruition in the first place, but he'd try different things with them, he'd try and improve on them, and sometimes it would work, sometimes it wouldn't. So, our episode begins with Harvey Honeycutt trying to sell a car to a young couple. They like to push the late models, don't they? They do, don't they? You know why they push the late models? No. You think it's because they're honest, law-abiding, rigidly moral churchgoers? <laughs> Let me tell you something, young man. They push, the, they push the late models because that is where the profit margin is. Well, we, they'll cram those post-54s down your gullet because they would rather make a buck than a friend. They would rather make a profit than a relationship. Well, they we would rather cram their wallets full of cash than fill their hearts with the fellowship of men to men. Well, we're really just looking for a good transportation car, and we thought the newer the car... <laughs> That's where you've completely gone wrong. That's where you've suddenly gone amiss. That's the juncture that's headed you into a blind alley. You don't want a new car. You don't want one of those rinky-dinks slapped together on an assembly line covered with chintzy chrome, fin tails, idiotic names, and no more workmanship than you can stick into a thimble. <laughs> if I take anything from this episode... It's a certain amount of enjoyment of Jack Carson as Harvey Honeycutt. He's this heavy-set, old-time Hollywood jokester-looking guy, and despite what he's been given to work with, he's good with words and he seems a real fit for this stereotypical used-car salesman kind of role. The opening pitch that he gives to the young couple, where he's given them the hard sell, is really well-delivered and it's quite fun. If nothing else, you have this seasoned comedy pro giving a performance that, initially at least, is quite amusing. But unfortunately that only goes so far. But I don't think that's Jack Carson's fault. Jack Carson was a worker. He started out with RKO as an extra, but then worked his way up to being an actor. He worked along Humphrey Bogart in his first major acting role. And from then on he went to do a bit of everything. He did musicals, westerns, but he seemed to have a particular talent for comedy. When television started to gain in popularity, he moved over from the movies and began to do more and more television. 
and he spent the latter half of the 50s into the 60s mainly doing just that. He seemed to be more of a guest star than just your job and character actor at the time, so he would jump from show to show for the most part, but he would only do one or two performances in each one. So he was one of those old Hollywood guys who could do a bit of everything, including sing, as shown in his 1957 record, Jack Carson sings favourite college songs. Buckle down, win sake, buckle down. You can win, win sake if you knuckle down. If you break their necks, if you make them wrecks, you can break the hex, so buckle down. Make them yell, win sake, make them yell. You can win, win sake. It was a different time. So Harvey is on his car yard, and an old man played by George Chandler comes to the yard trying to sell a vintage car. Oh, how do you do? Well, that depends, Grandpa, dear. If you came here to park this, I'll just charge you nominal rates, but if you're here to sell it, you'll have to give me three and a half minutes for my little laugh. <laughs> I'll give you 15 bucks for it. Any junk man will give you 12. I think the Smithsonian might top us both by a buck or two. It's a wonderful old car. And they build them better in the old days, I think. Ah, grandfather dear, that is the old rhubarb, the saw. The turkey that everybody and his brother's trying to pull in the open market. Cars were built better in the old days. <laughs> they did Ten years ago, they didn't know how to build cars. Now it's the new cars that sell. Don't mind these, it's the new cars that sell. It's the new cars that run. It's the new cars that combine the genius of mind, muscle, and the assembly line. Please, but I'll, I'll tell you what I'll do for you, because I love your family. I do like how Harvey does a complete about turn on his whole new cars are rubbish, old cars are the best speech. And at this point in the episode, I'm thinking maybe this is a bit of fun, a bit of an enjoyable nonsense. So Harvey buys the car from the old man and from then on, he can only tell the truth. Now I'm gonna level with you here. There's really not much in the way of trivia for the episode. The actors in it are pretty much our usual hardworking actors of the day. Nothing to really tell you there. The story itself, while amusing at first, just goes downhill. It doesn't even look that good because it's one of the videotaped episodes and it looks like it's filmed on a soundstage. I don't mind breaking down the plot and playing multiple different clips if I have interesting bits of trivia or observations to make to mix in with those clips. But this time I just don't. Is the comedy to be had from a person who lies for a living having to tell the truth? I guess so. Jim Carrey got a whole movie out of the same concept with Liar Liar. But it's just such an obvious gag that it really loses steam quite quickly. Through the course of the plot, Harvey has a run-in with his assistant Irv because he admits to Irv that he'll never give him a raise. I hate to bother you now, boss, but it's that thing about my raise. Your raise? Well, it's six months today. I don't want to bug you, but you promised. You said that in six months, if I'd sold three cars, that you would turn oh, around. Oh, yeah, well, sure. What I, I... The day you get more money out of me, it'll be below zero in the Fijis. Every yokel who works here starts and stops at the same salary. I'd only dangle that raise in front of him just as long as it takes him to get wise. He meets honest Luther Grimley, who has spent 30 years in politics, 
and nearly buys the haunted car that will make him tell the truth. How about this baby? That's no baby, it's a great-grandfather. Hasn't got any transmission, no rear end, no axle. That one's shot. That's the goods, isn't it? Hmm? You have to tell the truth, don't you? That's it. That's the reason for the song and dance. You have to tell the truth. Well, what about the Model A? I mean, in spite of the fact that it, that it's haunted, it's, uh, it's still a swell uh, conversation piece. For some people, maybe, but not for old, honest Luther Grimley. Buddy boy, I'm in politics. When you tell me I gotta start telling the truth all the time, holy Hannah, you know something? I couldn't make a single political speech. And then there's this odd thing where Harvey decides he's going to sell the car to the Russian leader, Nikita Khrushchev. And by this point, I'm just kind of thinking, really? I'm not going to sideline into a breakdown of Khrushchev's life story for such a lightweight episode, but just to give a sense of time and place, Khrushchev was the Russian leader at the time, a time when relations with the US were very strained to say the least. I'm no expert on Cold War politics, but from what I can gather, while some dismissed him as a bit of a buffoon, he was trying to liberalise Russia to a degree, and he was trying to build relations with the US, and he did visit in 1959 to meet with President Eisenhower. So again, I'm not an expert on such matters, but he doesn't seem to be a bad person as such, and he seems to be the type of person I would think sailing would be quite supportive of, unless I'm guessing maybe the distrust of the Russians at the time was so all-encompassing that nobody, even Rod Sailing, could break through it. I don't know, it's just so very odd having this be the conclusion of the episode. A novelization of this story exists in the book From the Twilight Zone by Rod Sailing that I mentioned in the Story of Dust episode, and it has a scene in it that's not in this version. Irv, Harvey's ex-employee, returns to the office. You see in the book version that Harvey doesn't get the idea to sell the car to Khrushchev from while he's talking with honest Luther Grimley. That exchange in the book actually ends with Grimley telling Harvey to go and hang himself. And the laughs just keep rolling. So Harvey has this exchange with Irv where he gets the idea to sell the car to Khrushchev. And the scene plays out like this. At this point, Irving slammed his small fist down on the desk. My old man is right. Once again, he pounded on the desk for emphasis, and it was then that Harvey noticed the newspaper lying there. He reached over and pulled it to him, turning it so that he could read the headlines. He stared at it for a long moment, then put it down and started to drum his fingers on the desk. And furthermore, Irving's voice squealed, My old man says that for two cents he'd come over here and give you such a hit in the head you'd never forget it. And besides that, my sister's husband is going to law school at night and I've got every intention of talking this whole thing over with him and maybe suing you for contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Harvey's head was bent low over the paper. He gave no sign of hearing Irving's soliloquy, much less being moved by it. Irving slammed his bony little fist on the tabletop again. When I think, when I think the terrible things you had me do, like selling that 1928 hearse and saying it was Babe Ruth's town car, 
He shook his head at the enormity of his past transgressions, but still Harvey Hennicutt kept his eyes fastened on the paper. His lips moved soundlessly as he read something in it, and then, very slowly, he looked up into Irving's face. Why not? he whispered. I ask you, Irving, why not? Irving thrust out a belligerent pointed jaw. Why not what? Harvey slapped the newspaper. Why not sell it to him? Irving Booby, I'm going to strike a blow for democracy. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to. You and me, Booby, he said, looking down at the phone book. You and me, this moment is going down in history. Right alongside of Washington crossing the Delaware, the invasion of Normandy, and the repeal of the 18th Amendment. So not particularly an improvement or any worse than what's in the episode, but there it is, we'll, we'll work with what we've got. In a former draft of this script, there is an actual scene after Khrushchev buys the car, and Martin Grams Jr. documents it in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. It's a press conference, and a representative of the Los Angeles Gazette asks, I wonder if you would tell us, sir, what observations you made in your travels through the United States. How would you compare the United States with the Soviet Union? The back view of the chubby, bald-headed man facing the press squirms in his seat, and after a slow pan over to the translator, whose eyes bug as he begins to perspire, gulps and swallows. The Premier feels that, well, he seems to feel that even without a trip to Disneyland, it is obvious that the United States has a standard of living far superior to that of the people of the Soviet Union, and Mr. Khrushchev wants it understood that the car, such as it is, and it isn't much, is considerably better than that owned by most Russians. The fact that it possesses four wheels puts it ahead of those owned by most Russians. So, that's there as well. Now, I think it's quite clear where I stand on this episode, and I apologise if anyone feels like this episode of the Twilight Zone podcast lacks effort. That's not the case, because sometimes I find the story of a failure as interesting, if not more so, than the story of a success. But there's really nothing to work with here. There's no trivia. Any humour that the episode has is gone in the first five minutes. Then we have this frankly baffling conclusion with Khrushchev. The whole thing is so lightweight that we can't even talk much about what it all means because it's just a gag that's really just not that funny. Even Rod Sailing admits that occasionally he came up with a turkey. He was so prolific that of course he would. It's only natural. Unfortunately, this is one of the biggest turkeys that I've came across since I started the Twilight Zone podcast. Couldn't happen, you say? Far-fetched, way out, tilt of center? Possible, but the next time you buy an automobile, if it happens to look as if it had just gone through the Battle of the Marne, and the seller is ready to throw into the bargain one of his arms, be particularly careful in explaining to the boss about your grandmother's funeral when you were actually at Chavez Ravine watching the Dodgers. It'll be a fact that you're the proud possessor of an instrument of truth, manufactured and distributed by an exclusive dealer in the Twilight Zone. Well, I apologise if this episode seems like a little bit of a downer, but um, what can you do? You know, it's, uh, like I said, if 
If there's interesting stories behind it, a failure, then I like to dig into those too, but there's really nothing to work with on this one. I mean, look at Dust. Dust is a kind of middling episode, but there's this whole rich backstory there, so I thought, well, let's explore that, and if, if this had something to it like that, then I would surely explore that too. But, you know, we've still got a lot of Twilight Zone to get through, so if there's not a story to tell, then I think it's important... Well, we just won't spend as much time with this episode, and I'll spend that time on the next one. And the next one is a Richard Matheson story called The Invaders, believed by some to be a bit of a Twilight Zone classic, so we'll see if we agree. If you want to get your thoughts in, then you can email me at feedback at thetwilightzonepodcast.com, and either a clip or an email would be great, and I will include it in the show. I'd also like to give a quick mention to my other podcast that I do with a friend of mine, Chris Clayton. It's called The Strange and Deadly Show, and we explore cult movies, that sort of thing. And a bit different in tone to this one. It's a bit um, bit of a different beast, but we stopped doing that at the end of 2015 for a bit of a Christmas break, and we're just starting to get that going again. So... I'd really like it if you could check that out as well. It's a fun podcast, and uh, you know I'm really quite proud of that one as well. And you can get that on the website, gentlemansgrandhouserecords.com, or if you go to the twilightzonepodcast.com, it's the same site, and you can just you can just find it on there. So anyway, that's enough from me. Next time it's the Invaders, and I will see you next time.